0: This last week, uh, AOC, she bites back in style. You know, if you were paying attention this week, uh, a senator um, got into a little bit of a tête-à-tête with uh, with our lovely AOC, and she called her, called her a fucking bitch, you know, got, got nasty with her, was very rude. And she took the opportunity to get on the Senate floor or the House floor, I guess, the House of Representatives, the congressional floor, to answer his lack of apology.
1: About two days ago, I was walking up the steps of the Capitol when Representative Yoho um, suddenly turned a corner, um, and he was accompanied by Representative Roger Williams, and accosted me on the steps right here in front of our nation's Capitol. I was minding my own business, walking up um, the steps, and Representative Yoho put his finger in my face. He called me disgusting. He called me crazy. He called me out of my mind, um, and he called me dangerous. And then he took a few more steps, and after I had recognized his uh, after I had recognized his his comments as rude. He walked away and said, I'm rude. You're calling me rude. I took a few steps ahead and I walked inside and cast my vote um, because my constituents send me here each and every day to fight for them and to make sure that they are able to keep a roof over their head, that they're able to feed their families and that they're able to carry their lives with dignity. I walked back out, and there were reporters in the front of the Capitol, and in front of reporters, Representative Yoho called me, and I quote, These are the words that Representative Yoho levied against a congresswoman, the congresswoman that not only represents New York's 14th congressional district, but every congresswoman and every woman in this country, because all of us, have had to deal with this in some form, some way, some shape, at some point in our lives. And I want to be clear that Representative Yoho's comments were not deeply hurtful or piercing to me because I have worked a working class job. I have waited tables in restaurants, I have ridden the subway, I have walked the streets, in New York City. And this kind of language is not new. I have encountered words uttered by Mr. Yoho and men uttering the same words as Mr. Yoho while I was being harassed in restaurants. I have tossed men out of bars that have used language like Mr. Yoho's. And I have encountered this type of harassment riding the subway in New York City. This is not new and that is the problem. Mr. Yoho was not alone. He was walking shoulder to shoulder with Representative Roger Williams. And that's when we start to see that this issue is not about one incident. It is cultural. It is a culture of lack of impunity, of accepting of violence and violent language against women, and an entire structure of power that supports that. Because not only have I been spoken to disrespectfully, particularly by members of the Republican Party and elected officials in the Republican Party, not just here, but the President of the United States last year told me to go home to another country, with the implication that I don't even belong in America. The governor of Florida, Governor DeSantis, before I even was sworn in, called me a whatever that is. Dehumanizing language is not new. And what we are seeing is that incidents like these are happening in a pattern. This is a pattern of, of an attitude towards women and dehumanization of others.
0: Now, I like... AOC, I, I I really do. I don't agree with a lot of her politics, and I still think she's pretty young and perhaps untried. But I really like her, and I like how she plays the game. She's very smart. Um, if she was old enough, if she were old enough, I would absolutely say that she should be Biden's VP pick, um, or as uh, Rob Kozlowski says, uh, perhaps Tammy Duckworth. But I really like AOC, and I'm hoping she stays in the game long enough that I can actually vote for her to be president because I really. I like her. Um, I, I do think her politics are extremely left um, and maybe a little bit too radical for my taste as a pragmatist and a centrist. However, um, I think as she, is, uh, as she realizes some of these ideas that she has uh, are, are, are kind of untenable, I think she's going to come further to the center because she actually wants to accomplish something. So I really, I really dig her, and I really like that moment. All right. Now, one of the things that I've, I've encountered and uh, I thought was interesting is that constantly in the casino, I'm dealing with the fact that uh, everyone wants to say that the face mask mandates violate their constitutional rights. It is not true. Looked it up. Um, Supreme Court of the United States of America in 1905 wrote, there are manifold restraints to which every person is necessarily subject for the common Good. On any other basis, organized society could not exist with safety to its members. This is not a constitutional violation. This is necessary, and it's necessarily subject for the common good. So shut the fuck up. Put your face masks on. Quit your bitching. Enough of it. Enough of it. The pandemic is getting out of control because you're an asshole who refuses to recognize that your personal freedom does not trump <laughs> everybody else's common good. And finally, you know, I'm really bummed out. Um, I love Survivor. Survivor is my favorite show on television, and it's not filming right now because we have a pandemic. But don't worry. The future of reality TV is completely uh, its secure. Um, the whole quarantined hot people in a room uh, competing and shit. Apparently, that is the new future of the reality TV. They were already pretty popular, but apparently, a Big Brother has announced its next season premiere and they're going to, you know, quarantine everybody, make sure that they are COVID free, and then they're going to stick them in a fucking house and film them. Um, so that actually. That's reality TV. That is uh, that's good. And Love Island, which that was the whole thing, is like a bunch of couples and like coupling up and all this kind of shit. I think they were in Fiji last year. Um, they are going to do season two. They're going to do it in the Cromwell in Las Vegas, which is one of the 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 resorts that has not opened up due to pandemic. So they're going to actually film it in. They're going to be basically quarantined in the Cromwell for how I don't know how fucking long they do it. So that should be I'm you know I'm I'm kind of fascinated to see how you do reality TV with all this stuff and if they talk about it and if it it affects them. But that is the interesting stuff in the news that I thought saw this week.
1: I want my cigarettes, Miss Ratched. I want my cigarettes. I want mine, Miss Ratched. What gives you the damn right to keep on with cigarettes? piled up on your desk and to squeeze out a pack only when you feel like it, huh?
0: You know, a lot of people talked about how they gained weight during the initial shutdown, that two and a half months, uh, what was it, seven, eight days? I can't remember—but the two and a half months of the shutdown, a lot of the shutdowns. Not everybody shut down that long, but in Vegas, we shut down for about two and a half months. And a lot of people said they talked about the COVID fifteen, you know, sort of like the the freshman fifteen. I didn't win. I didn't gain fifteen pounds, but I definitely gained a solid ten. And ever since then, and now part of, and part of that was because, you know, gyms were closed and I, I really hate working out at home. I just don't like it. If we shut down again, I I will absolutely figure out how to do that, but not my, not my, uh, my workout of choice. I like a gym and, uh, I'm, I'm in the process of losing that weight. And I got to tell you 54, it's fucking hard to drop a pound motherfucker. I'd I'd sooner cut off just like maybe I'll just cut off my left foot or left leg or something. And that, you know, because I'm telling you, this shit is intense. It's it's uh, it's pain in the ass. But I also know that the only way I'm going to lose weight is to eat less. That is how it works. I know people want to talk about all their different weight loss and their keto and all this bullshit. The way you lose weight is eat fucking less food. That's the way you lose weight. Even working out isn't a, a road to losing weight. It helps because you're burning some of the calories, but the fact is the only way you lose weight is they fucking eat less. I remember thinking how bizarre it was that uh, was it Christian Bale, when he did The Machinist, spent like six months, and all he ate for six months was an apple a day. And if you've seen that movie, yeah, he lost a lot of motherfucking weight. Not real healthy to do it that way, but... You know, I'm not going for the apple a day. I'm not losing my mind. I think uh, I think I'd become a monster to everybody and in, in everywhere else, and I can't possibly go into a casino and actually have to manage the casino with the only calories in my body being a goddamn apple. So that's not going to happen. Um, this is, as, uh, as you know, this is episode uh, 85, and I'm changing some things up. I hope uh, the changes are fun. Um, again, I hope if you're listening, you, you let people know. I've um, got a couple of pieces that I'd like to share with you, and so here we go. Were you listening to the dude's story, Donnie? What? Were you listening to the dude's story? I was rolling. So you have no frame of reference here, Donnie? You're like a child who wanders into Walter. the middle of a movie and wants Walter. to go. What is he talking My about? My rug. Forget it, Donnie. You're out of your element. The couple who moved into the house in Amityville knew about the murders. According to the book, George and Kathy Lutz knew about the brutal murders. And kept most of the existing furniture as well, so when the walls started bleeding and George, the white straight man in the story, started getting up at 3.15 a.m. every morning, eventually losing his mind and becoming a monstrous murderer in turn. No one should have been surprised. Live in a haunted house and the payment is far more than the property tax. Likewise, when fictional Stephen and Diane Freeling moved into the house in Suesta Verde, the clown doll went nuts, a tree in the backyard grabs the son, and their youngest gets sucked into the netherworld through a TV. The Freelings, however, did not know about the fact that the house was built on a Native American burial ground with the bodies of American genocide just beneath their basement. Ignorance doesn't give them a pass, though. They were white people who bought a house on land that was stolen by other white people. The ghosts of dead Indians had every right to terrorize them from their spoiled graves. Now, there is a sense of justice implied in the ghost stories associated with houses that were either built upon or were subject to the horrors of humanity. There's also a sense of fantasy as these stories our fiction, how much fun it is to visualize that our spirits infect places and things long after we're gone, and how brilliant a morality tale to envision that things done in the past, wrongs done in the past, can revisit us from beyond the grave. It's like Karma, you know, via malevolent specters coming back on back act, bad actors through either genetics, heritage, or the blind luck of those arrogant enough to buy a house with blood still dried in the beautiful hardwood floors. The house that is the United States, if it were an actual house, has plenty of flaky hemoglobin on the grounds. The legacy of genocide is white colonists brutally killed off the indigenous people to gain control of the new world, the history of chattel slavery, as well as immigrant servitude that built the early southern economy and later built the railroads. The bloody fields of the Civil War, the overwhelming evidence of men subjugating women as if they were property, Jim Crow, Nazi sympathizers leading up to World War II, the creation of massive wealth due to the arms industry selling weapons to both sides of almost every armed conflict since, the HUAC bullying and reputation destruction by a U.S. senator. If America were a house like in the movies, we'd be overwhelmed by the ghosts and poltergeists and revenants of a billion unjust acts. Now... Since America is not a house built on fictionalized bogeys, it seems we have living ghouls cropping up to remind us that because of the atrocious history of the war country, we must discard all the good done to build it and sustain it and toss it all out in an us versus them, oppressor versus oppressed, Joseph Campbell screenplay. Like the Freelings, some of us live here, absent of the knowledge of habitating a land founded by slave owners and rough riders, but due to our almost non-existent culture of whiteness, deserve to be crushed with guilt and shame. Others, like the Lutz, are well-read enough to understand the devil's bargain we've entered into by being both white and American, and thus are complicit in the atrocities. We are all, however, beneficiaries of the grand democratic experiment white black latino asian jewish straight gay and trans we've all benefited from the capitalism that allows us to buy cheap shoes and technology created by the poorest in the world we have all in large and small ways benefited from the constitution written by slave owners and the economic boom following the second world war Contrary to the hashtag not all men or hashtag not all whites horseshit hashtags, this is a recognition that it is absolutely true that hashtag all Americans are complicit. Hashtag all Americans are complicit. We are all the 1% of the globe. We are either all of us guilty of the sins of our forefathers or none of us is. So what do we do with our history? How do we live with ourselves? Why are we not all perpetually flagellating ourselves for living in a house built on the suffering and misery of so many? To quote a man far smarter than I, and this was Phil Ahrensberg on Facebook many, many moons ago. I've gotten rid of Facebook, so this is an older thought. Quote, it does everyone a disservice to pretend that the past is just some under-evolved caveman version of the present. We are the product of our history, our stories, our actions. I think it is reductive to judge all past culture by the lens of the present. Are Ming Dynasty Chinese people idiots because they didn't know about antibiotics? I'm not interested in denying our collective heritage and development any more than I am interested in embracing every story as a how-to manual for existence. I think hewing to the good-bad dichotomy determined by whatever the current loudest cultural tumult abandons nuance and the interaction and participation available in art. Like Facebook and Twitter, America isn't an abstract concept that we can judge from afar. America, just like social media, is us. It behaves as we behave. It is a tool and a government and a heritage that the collective we, tribes of descent and all, own and use every na- day. We know about the murders and genocide the place was built upon. We hope the ghosts of that past don't punish us for it. We still own the furniture and some of us wake up at three fifteen AM because we hear voices. Maybe the house needs to be destroyed. Or maybe it just needs a good landscaper, a solid coat of paint, and a serious redecoration. But it's our house, not the ghost's. The text came at an easy enough moment to respond to. Can we talk? Narcissistic, opportunistic, online bully texted me. Noob, narcissistic, opportunistic, online bully. Noob was someone I dealt with in my waning days in Chicago and lost the fight. Her M.O. was to find someone in the tiny community of storytellers in Chicago who was doing well, single that person out, start an online smear campaign, of course using her race and gender as a sticking point, and hammer away until that person fought back. As soon as the melee was afoot, she immediately went into victim mode and enlisted sick events to mob up upon that person. So many in the community were terrified she'd pick them, so when she'd pick someone else, they'd lay low. I called. After hearing the same story I had witnessed from Chicago personally and from afar, I weighed in. Do you really care what she thinks of you? Are you interested in jumping into a protracted, petty game that only ends up focusing attention on her? Or are you more interested in simply ignoring her completely and going about the very work, work, real work, and art that you're doing? My advice was to zip. Ignore her and walk away. No communication. She'd only screenshot anything sent and posted online with a few choice edits. No responses. Pretend she doesn't exist. Like Trump, the only way she wins is if you give her the attention she craves. The noob isn't unique. There are plenty who need people to care what they think, whose narcissism combined with crippling insecurity manifests into a manipulation of those around them for validation. We all crawl toward validation and recognition. We all preen and cajole to receive affirmation. The noob just weaponizes our desire for it, spins it as on its access to receive her own grotesque version of it for herself. That validation we crave, that's the problem, not the noob. In our hyperbolic anxiety, Circuit 2020 exacerbated by the existence of a horror show in the White House, increasingly precarious climate situations, and a virus coming out of the filthiest petri dish in the overpopulated planet, the marketing of self-care has gone into hyperdrive. We're in pandemic. We are in our homes. Take care of yourself. Self-care. It doesn't seem to be sufficient to merely get some sleep, some exercise, eat a bit better, read books, avoid toxic relationships, and retard the online fighting about politics to practice this self-care. Like so many other aspects of our lives, unless we advertise our insistence upon taking care of ourselves publicly in order to receive some of that tasty affirmation from strangers who we follow, it feels hollow. No one just loses weight anymore. They post their running stats and body image selfies. Taking a break on social media from the news practically requires the online announcement of such, or it didn't happen. Absent that digital pat on the head, quitting smoking or taking a break from alcohol is meaningless. Five billion people, all looking to stave off the dread of existence among seven billion people, relying on the opinions of 300 people to determine their own self-worth – the most pernicious thing Facebook ever foisted upon us was that fucking thumbs-up icon, and we, knowing how awful that crutch of approval fucked with us in grade school and in high school, stuff it into our groping mouths like the flamin' hot Cheetos Lizzo subsists on. The ultimate act of self-care is to give the opinions of others far less weight. I'm not suggesting one simply decides not to care what anyone thinks of them. That's sociopathic. I'm suggesting it weigh less than it does now. Removing the burden of the opinions of others is absolutely the very best step in self-care you could do. In the earliest days of WNP theater, I spent a lot of time, money, and effort to make sure that no one left the company. The year before, after a year and a half of doing a show together, everyone got burned out. I bought the company from my partners and everyone quit. My goal became almost singular to avoid that happening again. It became a truly thankless task. The harder I tried to please them, the more they wanted. I was burning myself out. My mom, on the phone one day, asked me, Why are you trying so hard to please people who don't seem to care about you? My mom is almost always right. And that is the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I hope you're liking some of the changes that I'm making. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to expand upon uh, what I have available. There's only so many stories I can tell. There's only so much stuff I do, and uh, I don't know if you're interested at all, but I'm certainly interested in myself. So, I hope you enjoy uh, where we're going, where things are heading. I hope you enjoyed it enough to go to patreon.com slash peculiar journeys, throw me a couple bucks, or at least go on to Apple Podcasts And review the show, say what you want to say, call me an asshole, don't really care. Just a little bit of attention is always what, I mean, as as we're talking that's what we crave. That's what we crave is a little bit of affirmation. So a little affirmation goes a long way, helps people find the podcast, and there you go. So have a great week. Take care of yourself. Please wear your masks. Please social distance. Um, Things are going to be fine. It's going to be weird. It's going to be different, but they will ultimately be fine. See you next week. Kill Your Journeys is an ever-evolving podcast of stories and personal thoughts by Las Vegas resident Don Hall. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and review it. Give it a star rating. Uh, It certainly helps other listeners find the podcast. If you are so motivated uh, to throw a few dollars my way to help support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash peculiar journeys and become a VIP patron. Even a dollar a month is better than zero a month, and we'd really appreciate it. I, I certainly would appreciate it. But if not, try and enjoy it, share it with somebody. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week.